Good evening and welcome again to our Bible study series, continuing in Out of Bondage into Abundance. We are moving along in part six. This is a seven-part series, and in part six we are looking one by one at the seven nations that occupied Canaan, the promised land, and Israel was told by God that they needed to conquer them and drive them out. But in addition to that, God had already assured them he would actually be the one destroying them and conquering them. And so we need to understand as we're moving through this study, uh, it can be a little bit overwhelming when we look at all these enemies that have to be conquered, but keep remembering that God has already destroyed them. God has already stripped them of their defenses, of their power, and we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. And all the Israelites had to do was trust God and obey Him. And they were assured of absolute victory. They were assured of entering into that promised land and taking full possession of all of that good land that he had been speaking to them about. But of course we saw many of them failed in one or both of those aspects. They didn't trust God and they didn't obey him. And so we need to keep singing that old hymn, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way. Two simple things that really are the foundation of our whole Christian life. Trust God and obey him. Take him at his word, whatever his word says, we can believe him. Whatever he tells us in his word, if we obey him, he will give us strength, he will be with us, and he will conquer all of our enemies. So, we're going to finish tonight with the second of these seven nations. Just recapping a few things, and I'm not going to go over... Uh, a lot of the previous studies, because those are all available. Uh, The recordings, as well as the notes for all of these studies, are available on our website at new-life-ministries.org, and if you follow the prompts there, you can find downloadable uh, notes, and also all of the recorded messages are there. But just a quick recap. God told them that they were going into a land flowing with milk and honey, but it was also a land where there were seven nations, evil, wicked nations, and he also told them ahead of time they were stronger and more powerful than the Israelites. Not a very encouraging uh, scenario that you're going in to a land that's already occupied by enemies, wicked, idol-worshipping, perverse nations, and they're stronger than you are. But God encouraged them repeatedly, saying, I will go before you as a devouring fire. I will send in my hornets, and I will drive them out. All you have to do is take possession of their land, and don't make any treaties with them, don't make any agreements with them. And we will see later on, how the Israelites failed to do that with one of these seven nations, and they were actually tricked 
into making a treaty with them, and they actually represent deception, but more about that later. We've studied the Canaanites. They were the first nation that we looked at, because they're really the root of all the other nations, and we saw that the Canaanites represent a spirit of worldliness, or the love of money. Money represents material stuff, material wealth. The, the idea being, if you have a lot of money, you can buy a lot of earthly material things. It's an earthly-minded person. And we saw that Paul told Timothy, the love of money is the root of all evil. And interestingly, Canaan was the father of five of the other six evil nations. So indeed, he was the root of all evil. And the next nation in line that we've been studying is the Amorite nation. And we saw some interesting things about the Amorites. They lived in the hill country. They lived in high places. Their name means promotion or publicity. They lived in the mountains. And, of course, we've been studying them as representing a spirit of pride. Now, we're going to finish with the Amorites tonight, but you and I are not going to be done with the Amorite spirit in our lives. Pride is something that we have to battle until our final breath. And the minute you think you've conquered pride, be careful because you're about to be deceived. Because, as we've been learning, we have to keep continually humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God, lest this spirit deceive us, cripple us, and bring us down. And I want to read a, a verse again that we saw at the beginning of this study. It's found in Amos 2, verses 9 and 10. Uh, and the Lord is speaking. He says, Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were tall as the cedars, and strong as the oaks, I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you forty years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. So, I find this verse fascinating. God wanted to give them the land of the Amorites, but he also had to destroy the Amorites. And two things are mentioned here. Uh, their fruit above and their roots below. They were tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below. We have to believe God to get at the very roots of pride in our lives. It has deep roots, just like an oak tree. And I don't want to discourage you, but I've been at this for 41 years now, and I would be lying and I would be greatly deceived to tell you tonight that I have conquered pride. I haven't. I have to deal with it daily. I have to apply all the things that we've talked about in this Bible study regularly, or I can still fall prey to pride. And the Bible 
has a number of examples, especially in Kings and Chronicles, of many great men who started off very well, but toward the end of their lives, they were bitten with this serpent of pride, and they ended their lives very poorly and very sadly. So we cannot let up. We have to be on guard all the time, and particularly in the final laps of the race, this is where the enemy would try to trick us and trip us up, and we have to continually be on our guard, and we have to pray, Lord, destroy the roots below and destroy the fruit above. Many times we're just going for the fruit above, but we haven't dealt with the roots, and they spring up again, and they keep producing more fruit. So we have to pray uh, according to God's word, Lord, lay the axe to the roots of pride in my life. Get down to the very uh, origins, the very roots of this thing. And we've studied the essence of pride is deception. And as you really get down to the essence of pride in your own life, God can begin to deal with the roots of it. The real roots of pride we saw are in the idea that I am something. And Paul told the Galatians, if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And the Bible gives a clear definition of pride in Obadiah 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you. So when we start entertaining thoughts of greatness, and we start thinking that we are something, that is very, very dangerous. And so we have to be constantly on our guard, particularly in our mind, in our thought patterns and processes. Keep humbling ourselves in our mind. Keep crying out to God, Lord, pull down every stronghold in my mind, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ. So, we've been looking at seven steps to overcoming this thing called pride. And all seven of them begin with the same two words. Humble yourself, humble yourself, humble yourself. And a very quick recap. Number one we saw, humble yourself, submit to God and to others. Submit to all of those people whom God places over your life with authority. Maybe your parents, maybe your husband, maybe your pastor, elders in the church. It may be the police officer or the civil government and, and civil authorities. Whoever it may be, the New Testament says, Submit yourselves to God, submit yourselves to your elders, and submit to one another. Secondly, we saw, humble yourself, boast in the Lord, not about yourself. We can brag about God all day long. No problem with that. Look for ways to exalt God, glorify God, brag about the great things He's done in your life, glorify 
the Creator and His majesty and power and wisdom and get your attention off of yourself and boast about God and what He does. Number three, humble yourself, acknowledge who you really are. Nothing. We are dust. We are like grass in the field, here today, gone tomorrow. We need to come to grips with the reality of who we are. Paul did that. He says in a number of places, I find no good thing in me. When Paul really looked hard at himself, he said, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst sinner on planet Earth. And yet, look what God's grace has done in my life. He became the greatest of all the apostles, but he realized in himself he was nothing. Number four, humble yourself, seek the praise of God and not men. Our tendency is always to try to get man's approval, man's praise, man's acceptance, but that's a trap. Don't seek praise from men. Seek the praise that comes from God. And we're picking up where we left off last time in step number five. Humble yourself, serve others, and in lowliness of mind, esteem them better than yourself. Now this is a real challenging one. And if you're following in the outline, we're on page 106. And again, this is point number five. Humble yourself, serve others, and in lowliness of mind, esteem them better than yourself. Now this is totally counter to our fallen human nature. In our own fallen nature, we are number one. There's no one on planet Earth smarter, better looking, greater, stronger than I am. Let's be honest, that's the, the human condition, the fallen condition of man. It's pride, it's arrogance. I'm the greatest thing. Paul is saying, esteem others better than yourself. And I want to reread these verses from Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. And a little later on tonight, we're going to come back to Philippians 2 for some other important uh, wisdom that Paul has to share with us. But let's read Philippians 2, 3 to 8. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Oh, boy. How often are we doing things motivated by selfish ambitions and conceit? Paul says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. And let me repeat again here, God doesn't just look at what we do. He looks at why we do it. The Pharisees did a lot of spiritual and righteous and religious things, but their motivation was all 
rooted in pride. And Jesus repeatedly rebuked them and exposed them for the hypocrites that they were. They were doing their prayers and doing their uh, charity and all their great works of righteousness to be seen by men, to be applauded by men, to receive the glory and the praise and the applause of men. And so the New Testament teaches us that God is looking at our hearts, not just at our actions. Actions can often reveal what's in our hearts, but at the same time, God can go beyond the actions and see the actual motives. Here, Paul is talking about motives. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, notice it's the mind where we have the battle, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Wow. Now that's going to take some work. That's going to take some prayer. That's going to take some real discipline. And my experience is it's going to take the rest of your life to work at this. In lowliness of mind, begin to esteem other people better than yourself. And when you first start out trying to do that, it's very, very difficult. Trust me. It's very hard to admit that there's somebody smarter than you, more spiritual than you, a better preacher than you, somebody who knows God better than you, and on and on and on we can go. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Brother, you're better than I am. You're more holy than I am. You're more righteous than I am. You have more faith than I have. And you'll find if you begin to work at this, it becomes easier and easier, and it actually starts to become fun. You enjoy lifting up everyone around you because the devil tries to tell us if you put everybody down around you, that's going to help lift you up. That's the way the world works. But really, that doesn't work. When you try to put everyone else down, you're actually putting yourself down. When you begin to lift others up around you, esteem them better than yourself, lo and behold, God starts to lift you up. And you don't have to lift yourself up. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Verse 4. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. We, we begin to live and walk in an others-focused kind of an attitude. We're focused more on other people, their feelings, their ambitions, their desires, what other people want. Verse 5, let this mind, notice again, it's in the mind that all this starts. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, 
coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You know, this one statement should make all of this much easier for you and for me. Why should we humble ourselves? Because Jesus did. Even Jesus, the perfect, sinless Son of God, humbled himself. Verse 7, it says, He made himself of no reputation, knowing that he was co-equal with God. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, co-equal with his Father. He was proactive. He did this on his own. He made himself of no reputation. One translation says he emptied himself. He literally emptied himself and came in the likeness of a man. Wow. Let this mind be in you. And this is something we have to work at. It doesn't happen overnight. But as we apply these scriptures and day by day we meditate on who Christ is and what he did and we we cry out to God Lord I want this mind in me this mind that was in Christ bring this mind into me I must decrease he must increase and Ultimately, it's not so much that I'm trying to be like Jesus, but there's an exchange that takes place. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, it's Christ now living in me. Christ's mind is now my mind. And another familiar verse in Matthew 11, everybody loves to quote verse 20, 28, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Beautiful verse. But that's not where it ends. Verse 29, Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You see, there's a connection between being humble and finding rest for your soul. And the opposite is equally true. We have lack of rest, we have restlessness, anxiety, and, and no peace in our souls, often because of pride. We're driven by selfish ambition. We're striving and struggling in our own flesh to promote ourselves and to make ourselves great, and it's wearying, and it's exhausting, and it's draining. Whereas, if you just lay your life down, come to Jesus, take his yoke upon you, and begin to learn from him, from his example, which is one of gentleness and humility, I am gentle and humble in heart, lo and behold, you begin to find rest for your soul. We find rest when we cease from striving. I love one translation for Psalm 46.10. Uh, Be still and know that, that I am God. But one Bible says, 
cease from your striving. We often are, are striving and pushing. This, this is the, the way it's done in modern culture. You gotta get out there and step on people and, and climb the ladder of success and put everyone else around you down and, and you need to take the, the bull by the horns and you need to promote yourself. And what happens? You have no rest. You have no peace. People have heart attacks, strokes. They're taking all kinds of pills, antidepressants and, and sleeping pills and everything because they have no rest in their soul. Come to Jesus. Give up your life. Lay your life down and just humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Start to learn from Jesus' example of humility. And lo and behold, life becomes very easy. You're not struggling anymore. <laughs> you don't have to lift yourself up. God says, if you will humble yourself, I will lift you up. I will promote you. I will exalt you in due time. All right, on to some more scriptures. I love this next one. Isaiah 57, verse 15. The Lord is speaking here. Listen to what he has to say. This is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Very interesting. God lives in a high place, but guess who's going to live with him there? The lowly. I dwell in a high place, but also with the one who is lowly in spirit. Whom does God revive? He revives those with a lowly spirit, those with a contrite heart the broken, the humble, the meek, the lowly. These are the people that God is gathering around himself in his kingdom. They are the ones that he wants closest to him around his throne and ultimately seated with him on his throne. I live in a high and holy place, there's no higher place than God's throne, but it's not for the high and the lofty and the arrogant, it's for the lowly, the broken, and the contrite. That should also encourage us to want to learn from Jesus, to be meek and lowly in heart, humble, lowly in spirit, so that we can live close to the Lord. Alright, back to the New Testament. Romans 12, verses 6 to 16. A very important passage of Scripture, and there are several things we want to point out here. Romans 12, from verse 6. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. 
If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Now let's pause for a minute. This is somewhat like 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul talks about diversity of gifts and so forth, but he mentions some different aspects here. These are also different gifts that God gives, and clearly in Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul explains this very clearly. We're not all the same. We're not all supposed to be the same. Matter of fact, God loves variety. He loves diversity. Therefore, he has different members in his body, and he gives different gifts according to their position, their office, and their function within the body. Thank God your body has a variety of of different cells and tissues and organs. Your liver isn't anything like your heart. Your heart isn't anything like your fingernails. But every part of your body serves a very specific function, and all of those different functions working together make you, and they keep you alive and healthy. Now, he says we have different gifts according to the grace given to each one of us. Whatever grace God has given to you, whatever gifts uh, he's given to you, grace and gift are almost the exact same word in Greek, charis and charisma. Whatever grace gifts he's given to you, he's given to you according to your function. So, if you're a teacher, he's going to gift you with the ability to teach. If your gift is that of giving, charitable giving, helping the poor, helping the homeless, giving in material ways, then he'll give you that grace, then use that grace. If it's giving, give generously. Some people, God gives gifts of administration, of leadership. If it is to lead, do it diligently. Others, God gives a gift of showing mercy. We need all of these gifts in the church. If he's given you that gift, do it cheerfully. So we have all these different kinds of gifts, but he starts this section in verse 7 saying, If it is serving, then serve. Really, all of these different gifts are similar in one regard. We're serving others. The purpose of gifts is very clear in 1 Corinthians 12. It's to edify the other members of the body. It's not to boast myself, exalt myself. It's to serve the church. If it's serving, then serve. Verse 9, Love must be sincere, Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. And listen to these next words. Honor one another 
above yourselves. Sounds very similar to what we just read in Philippians 2. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Honor one another above yourselves. Can you imagine what a glorious place the church would be if every Christian did this? We wouldn't have fights and splits and divisions and all the things that go on in churches if we just applied this one sentence, honor one another above yourselves. You can't do that if you have an Amorite spirit. The Amorites have to be destroyed, their roots below and their fruit above, for you to truly begin to honor others above yourself. Drop down to verse 13. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Hmm. Practice hospitality. You know, I find many Christians are lacking in this grace of hospitality. Many, many believers don't even know what it is to invite a brother or a sister or another family over to their house and give them a cup of tea or give them a snack or give them a meal. That's what hospitality is. In the early church, they regularly went from house to house, breaking bread together, serving one another. Now, we don't want anybody to mess up our carpet. We don't want anybody coming into our house and, and uh, getting in the way of our privacy. Well, you can't have privacy all the time if you want to practice hospitality. It's in the Bible. We need to ask the Lord, Lord, how can I show hospitality to God's people? How can I do what Paul is saying here? Share with the Lord's people who are in need. When's the last time you took some food out of your refrigerator and gave it to someone in need? When is the last time you gave some money to someone who was in trouble? These are practical ways that we can live out our Christianity. Verse 15, Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Pay close attention to verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Notice all these one another's. You can't really be a Christian unless it's a one another Christianity. Live in harmony with one another. And here it comes. Do not be proud. You can't do any of this that Paul has been telling them to do if you're proud. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. And here again, Christ's example is what inspires and motivates us to do this. Jesus was willing to associate with you and with me. Those are people of low position. He came down from his Father's throne 
to associate with us. The, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, he's not ashamed to call us brethren. He calls us his brothers and his sisters. My goodness, that is being willing to associate with lowly people. The sinless coming down to mingle with sinners. One of the things they said about Jesus in the Gospels, he was a friend of sinners. He would have dinner with tax collectors. He, he would mingle with the worst of society. He was willing to associate with low people. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Here again, our natural tendency is to want to mingle with people of high position. We think, oh, if we can get in with the in crowd, if we can get in with the, with the top dogs, then that'll help lift us up. No, it doesn't work that way. If you mingle with the low dogs, God will be pleased, and he'll begin to bless you and use you and exalt you. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. You know, I'm going to tell you a true story of something that my wife and I experienced some years back, a few years back. We were visiting in a certain place where there were a number of different churches, some of them very large in metropolitan areas, uh, very wealthy, large congregations, churches that were bringing in lots of money in their monthly offering plates, and then some other churches that were small in rural areas, poor people, hardly any money, uh, not big offerings, kind of rejected. And whenever a visiting preacher or a pastor would come, they would always go to the two or three big, wealthy churches. And uh, I'm not going to say why they would go there, but I can only imagine that one of the thoughts might have been, we're going to get a big offering if we go to the bigger churches and we don't want to waste our time going to those little poor churches because, you know, it's not really going to be worth our while. They're not going to give us a very big offering. Well, my wife and I made a decision on one of our trips to that place. We weren't going to go to the big churches. We were going to go to all the little ones, all the poorest ones, and all the ones that felt left out. Nobody ever visited them. And... They felt kind of like despised and rejected because of that. Well, we chose to visit only those little poor churches, and we told the people in charge that on this particular visit, we would not be going to those other big, more prosperous, wealthy churches. And I had been to those churches before, so I kind of knew, you know, what kind of an offering 
to expect if you go to one of those big churches, you're going to come away with a nice check in your pocket. Well, we weren't interested in that. We just wanted to have fellowship with these other people. And um, I knew the pastors of the churches, and I just wanted to be with them. And I'm not saying I'm the most humble guy on the face of the earth, but this scripture came to my mind. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. And so we went and visited, oh, I guess about four or five of those smaller, poorer churches, and we had wonderful meetings. We were received so warmly, and God moved in every one of those places, and it was just so refreshing, and and we came away with such joy in our hearts. But you know what amazed us more than anything? Those four or five poor churches combined gave us offerings that far exceeded the offerings that we would normally have received if we had gone to the wealthy churches. That wasn't our motivation. We weren't going looking for the offerings. We were going because we wanted to be with the people. And here, lo and behold, God blessed us even financially. You know, if you take God at his word, you will never go wrong. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. All right, we got to move here because I want to finish with the Amorites tonight. Point number six, humble yourself through fasting. Fasting is a very important discipline and there are different reasons why we fast, but this is one that is specifically mentioned in the Bible. In the Old Testament, when the Jewish people fasted, it's often referred to as afflicting themselves. They would even put on sackcloth and ashes as part of that self-abasement or that afflicting of themselves. Let's look at a couple of scriptures that point out this aspect of fasting. Psalm 35 and verse 13. David is referring to how he fasted even when his enemies were against him. He says, yet when they were ill, his enemies, his accusers, his attackers were ill, yet when they were ill, <clears throat> I put on sackcloth and humbled myself <clears throat> Excuse me. I put on sackcloth and humbled myself with fasting. Wow. Humbled myself with fasting. There's no way around this. Fasting is an important discipline. It's an important step combined with all these other steps that we've looked at in regularly humbling ourselves regularly. In Matthew 6, where Jesus talks about prayer, giving of alms, and fasting, three important spiritual disciplines, he doesn't say, if you pray, he says, when you pray. 
He doesn't say if you give, he says when you give. And he doesn't say if you fast, he says when you fast. In other words, it is assumed that as Christians, fasting would be a regular discipline in our spiritual lives. One of the reasons it helps us to humble ourselves. And let's be honest, when you go for a day or two without food, your body starts to weaken, and it's humbling. It's a humbling feeling when you feel weak, and that's what it's intended to do, to make you feel weak. You're not the Almighty that you think you are, and it kind of helps put you in your place of lowliness and humility. There's another very interesting passage that should motivate all of us to fast and pray in 1 Kings chapter 21. The story of King Ahab. When you hear the, the name King Ahab mentioned, certain images should probably come to your mind. Wicked, evil, perverse, vile. He was perhaps the worst king that Israel ever had. And we'll read about that here. 1 Kings 21, starting from verse 25 down to 29. There was never anyone like Ahab. Wow, what a distinction. King of Israel. Never anyone like him. But, read the rest of it. There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. Man, they made a great team. Urged on by his wife. Verse 26. He behaved in the vilest manner, by going after idols, like the Amorites, ah, stop right there, like the Amorites, the Lord drove out before Israel. How interesting. He behaved in the vilest manner, by going after idols, like the Amorites, the Lord drove out before Israel. Verse 27, when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He responded to the word of God. This evil, vile, wicked, proud king responded to God's word. Tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Some Bibles say humbly. Verse 28. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? <laughs> maybe, maybe Elijah had gotten the news, but maybe he didn't even believe it. So the Lord has to appear, get the prophet's attention, 
and say, By the way, have you noticed King Ahab? This is the king that wanted to kill Elijah. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself? Well, what evidence do we have that King Ahab had humbled himself? The only thing it says is he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself? What did the Ninevites do when Jonah went to them and said, you guys got 40 days and God's going to lower the boom on this place? They fasted from the king right on down. Everyone fasted. And God changed his mind and spared them. What did they do? They humbled themselves and repented. Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Wow. Just because he fasted and humbled himself, God spared him of the judgment that he intended to bring. At the very least, judgment was delayed because he humbled himself. He fasted before the Lord. Can you imagine what would happen here in America if we had another president like President Lincoln who called the nation to a day of national prayer, fasting, and repentance? God might, just might, spare us a little while longer from his wrath and judgment. We have become so arrogant in this country. There is no other cure for America but this one thing. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. Good place to start would be with a national day of fasting. Because he humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day. Finally, step seven, humble yourself. Seek humility, not greatness. Here again, our natural bent in our fallen carnal nature is to seek greatness for ourselves. It's to exalt ourselves, boast ourselves, promote ourselves, get our picture on the front page of the paper, get our name in the headlines, get as many people as possible uh, praising us and lifting us up. But this says, seek humility, not greatness. This is a concept that may be new to some of us, but humility is something we actually have to seek for. We have to look for it. We have to work at it. It's something that we need to run after and pursue humility. Let's begin with an interesting verse in Jeremiah 45, verse 5. I've been going through the book of Jeremiah this week. Oh, my God. Whew, makes you shake and 
tremble inside as you read chapter after chapter how God saw the children of Israel and the things that he spoke to the prophet Jeremiah. On a number of occasions he tells Jeremiah, don't pray for these people. Don't even pray for them. Even if Moses and Samuel were here interceding for them, I wouldn't listen to them. That's scary stuff. And here they are, about to go into 70 years of captivity in Babylon. That's if they survive Nebuchadnezzar's uh, siege of Jerusalem, where he burned the whole city to the ground. In the midst of all of that, Jeremiah has a servant named Baruch. And listen to what, what the word of the Lord is for Baruch. Should you then seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them, for I will bring disaster on all people, declares the Lord. But wherever you go, I will let you escape with your life. I think we can expand this to you and me. Should you, should I seek great things for ourselves? When God is about to judge this world, the the church is about to be raptured out of this world and seven years of unprecedented tribulation are coming, is this the time for us to be promoting ourselves, lifting ourselves up, seeking great things for ourselves? God says, do not seek them. Well, if we're not to seek great things for ourselves, what are we to seek? I would suggest in the following verses, we'll learn that we are to seek humility. Seek that lowly position. Seek to be the least and the last, the lowest, not the greatest. Recall, one of the meanings of Amorite is promotion. Pride always gives rise to selfish ambition, and we begin, ever so subtly at first, we begin to promote ourselves and our supposed greatness. And let, we, let me remind myself and all of my listeners tonight, the same prophet Jeremiah, earlier in the book of Jeremiah, says this, the heart is desperately wicked. It's deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Our own heart plays tricks on us. And that's why we talked earlier how we can do all kinds of spiritual things. Oh, we can preach, cast out devils, prophesy, read the Bible, fast, pray, give alms, feed the homeless. We can do all kinds of great things. But what is our motivation? Are we promoting ourselves like the Pharisees? Are we sounding a trumpet in the marketplace? Hey, listen to my great praying. Look at how spiritual I am. Look at how much of the Bible I know. Selfish ambition. 
promoting ourselves. You see, thank God we have something that the Pharisees and the people in the Old Testament didn't have. We have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit searches our hearts. He gets even down into our motives, the intents of the heart. And if you listen carefully to the Holy Spirit, he'll start showing you when you do something, what your motivation is. Why did I pray? Why did I fast? Why did I preach? Why did I do X, Y, or Z? Is it to promote myself? Or am I truly humbling myself because I want to be more like Christ? Well, if you're like me, you find you still have a lot of pride and a lot of selfish ambition working inside there, and so the battle's not fully over yet. But we're in good company. Jesus' 12 apostles, the original 12 that he called, they were a mess. They were full of pride, selfishness, selfish ambition, and he knew that, but he still called them. And he began to teach them, and he began to work with them, and try to open their eyes to the dangers of this thing called pride. Look at two very fascinating passages in the Gospels. Let's begin in Matthew 18, and then we'll turn to Luke chapter 9, and we're almost done with the Amorites. Matthew 18, verses 1 to 4. At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, listen to their question, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? (laughs) Who's going to be top dog in the kingdom, Jesus? That's really what they're asking. Who's greatest? Who's going to be number one in the kingdom? I love the way Jesus answered certain questions. He really doesn't even answer them. He calls a little child to him and placed the child right in the midst of the disciples. That's all he did. Called a little child and placed him there in the middle of the disciples. And then, verse 3, he begins to talk. Truly I tell you, unless you change... I like that. Unless you change. A change has to take place. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, what does he mean by change and become like a child? Well, we should already know what that means, but in case we don't, he explains it in verse 4. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We must change and become like little children, humble and lowly like little children. The disciples were just the opposite. They wanted to be the greatest. It gets worse, though. Look in Luke chapter 9, verses 46 to 56. 
And we're reading from the New King James Version. Give me about five more minutes here and we're done. Verse 46. Then a dispute arose among them. These are the apostles. These are going to be the foundation of God's church. A dispute arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. I can only imagine that argument. You're not the best one. I'm the best preacher here. No, you're not. I'm stronger than you are. Oh, boy. What a mess. Arguing about which one of them was the greatest. Verse 47, Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child, set him by him, and said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all will be great. This is different from Matthew 18. He who is least among you all will be great. Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. He didn't get it. John missed the whole message that Jesus was trying to teach here. Master, we saw someone casting out demons, and we rebuked them, because they're not with us. They're not a member of our church. They're not with our group. Jesus said to him, Do not do that. Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Remember, this whole passage fits together. He's teaching them about humility, being like a little child. Now, when the Samaritans don't welcome him and receive him properly, look what happens. Verse 53. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? Oh, this is great. This is good stuff. Lord, you want us to call down fire on these guys? Burn them up? Verse 55. Jesus turned and rebuked them rebuked them, rebuked John, the apostle of love. You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. Well, it doesn't specify what 
manner of spirit they were of, but in the context, I think it's pretty clear. This was a proud spirit. It was an arrogant spirit. They still had an arrogant spirit about them. And he had to rebuke them and tell them to their faces, you don't know what spirit is operating in your lives. Verse 56, For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. This wasn't a good day for the disciples. Starts off with them arguing amongst themselves who would be the greatest. Then they're forbidding other well-meaning ministers who were trying to cast demons out of people, rebuking them because they weren't a part of their group. And finally, they're ready to call down fire on people. Don't know what manner of spirit you are of. Humble yourself. Seek humility. Don't seek to be the greatest. And this brings me to my final two verses. Zephaniah 2 and verse 3. Beautiful verse. Listen to this. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. You who do what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Seek the Lord, seek righteousness, and yes, seek humility. Humility is something that we need to actually seek. We need to look for it. We need to scour the scriptures, look for every verse in the Bible that addresses this issue of pride and humility and start applying them to our own lives. Pray fast, cry out to God, look for every opportunity to humble yourself, put other people ahead of yourself, serve others, associate with low people, esteem others above yourself, look for opportunities to boast in the Lord and not about yourself, seek for humility. And finally, in the New Testament, Paul tells this to young Timothy. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 11. But you, man of God, flee from all of this. There's a long laundry list of bad stuff he was to flee from. Flee from all of this and pursue. Here's what you're to seek. Here's what you're to run after. Here's what you are to pursue, Timothy. Pursue righteousness, pursue godliness, pursue faith, pursue love, pursue endurance, and last but not least, pursue gentleness. This is the Greek word praotes, which literally means humility or meekness. And some translations, I believe, translate it that way. What is Paul saying? Pursue humility. Actually strive for it. Work at it. Run after it. Seek for it. Cry out to God. Seek the Lord for His humility in 
your life. Let's pray tonight that God would do what he assured the Israelites of, that he would destroy the Amorite, destroy its roots below, and destroy its fruit above, that we can truly humble ourselves under his mighty hand and learn from the most humble man who ever walked this green earth, the Lord Jesus Christ, who emptied himself, who humbled himself, even to the point of death on the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you tonight that you, O God, you live in a high and a lofty and a holy place, but you've chosen to dwell there with the lowly, with the broken, with the contrite, and with the humble. Lord, we pray tonight that you would destroy the, the Amorite spirit in our lives. Destroy the roots below. Destroy the fruit above. God, we live in a culture steeped in arrogance and pride. How this nation needs to humble itself under your mighty hand. How we as a people need to humble ourselves daily under your mighty hand. God, I pray that you would help us to apply all of these things that we've learned about and talked about. Help us to seek humility. Help us to esteem and honor others above ourselves. Help us to take the last seat. Help us to empty ourselves, make ourselves of no reputation. Help us to seek to promote others around us and not to promote ourselves. Help us to seek to glorify you, to exalt you, to boast about you, and to lift up your name so that you, O oh God, in due season, can lift us up. We praise you and we thank you tonight, O oh God, for this assurance that you will give us total and complete victory over the Amorites, making us more than conquerors. Father, bless each and every one on the phone, on the internet, joining with us in this Bible study. Take us from faith to faith, from glory to glory, from victory to victory, as you lead us into that promised land, a land of abundance, a place flowing with milk and honey, a place where all of your promises are fulfilled in our lives. We bless you, we praise you, and thank you tonight for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.